Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 27th, 2017, and this is episode 2032 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Just Jack show because it's a Tuesday. Today we're going to talk about a subject that we we sort of dance around all the time, but we're going to address it head on today. We're going to talk about planning for your future when the very future itself is so uncertain. And uh, I guess the future is always uncertain. Any of us who were actually certain about the future would have been rich long ago. I mean, if we were certain about the future, just, just in making bets on the Super Bowl alone, we could get fairly wealthy, right? I mean, come on. Uh, if we were certain about the future, picking stocks or Bitcoin times to buy and sell, I mean, if you just had certainty and clarity about the future, you could be very, very wealthy as a person. So we all know that there's a continuous uncertainty about the future. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. But we, we have had a, a pretty good idea of what the future would bring us over the last hundred years, honestly. Um, especially, I'd say, the last 50 years. There's been a lot of change, but that change has been very telegraphed and very obvious. It, it was pretty obvious that eventually we would leave cassette tapes and go to CDs, and then it became obvious that the CD was on the way out and we would be going to digital music. Uh, the disruptors came very, very abruptly in later parts of the technological evolution, but we did know that the, basically there would be music in a music market of some sort. And that people would listen to music, right? So, like, we had a certain amount of certainty. You knew that if you got a good degree, you probably could get a good job. That Now, in the past, let's say in the 80s, you'd get a degree and get a job. And today you have to think a little bit more about the degree you get. But even with all my bashing of the college education system, if you get a good degree, you probably can get a good job, especially if you're willing to go to where the job is. And there's a certain amount of certainty in that. We knew that there were, you know, that the financial sector would be a good place to be employed, even if times were bad in it, that most of the people in there would do okay. We knew that medicine was a good occupation. We, we knew so many things would be just sort of kind of the way they are, even though they would change. We now stand at a precipice where many of the things that we've come to expect is just, eh, they'll be all right, are going to change in dramatic ways that are so much different than they've changed in the past that it makes planning difficult. And we'll be talking today about how we can actually use the same formula people have always used with intention and just a little bit of tweaking, and we can actually plan and design resilient lifestyles for ourselves that aren't future-proof, but are what I call future-resilient. Your, your lifestyle cannot be future-proof. It's impossible. Because the future could be a giant rock landing on your head. You know, some the size of like a Ford truck. Well, you're dead, so it wasn't future-proof. Future-resilient means that though you might get knocked off the path, with a little bit of adjusting and, and, and reassessment, you can get back on it. That's a good lifestyle design. We'll be talking about all that in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? 
If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasonings, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Before we get into today's main subject, let's take a look at the year uh, in history, and today's year in history is the year 15. I have one segment today from David Verne, and it is called Return to the Forest, contributed by David Verne. After Augustus' death last year, mutinies broke out in several legions over matters of service length and pay. On the banks of the Rhine, Germanius decided that the main issue was boredom and decided to give them something to do. He launched a surprise raid on the Germania and continued small assaults throughout the winter while preparing for spring. Once spring arrived, he marched into Germania with 100,000 soldiers and made straight for the man responsible for the German resistance, Arminius. Germanius uh, captured Arminius's wife, but was unable to capture the chieftain himself. He was able to accomplish several important goals. Guided by a few, some of the few survivors from the battle, the legions came across the site of the disaster of the uh, Tettenberg Forest several years earlier. They are performed. They perform the task of burying the countless bones strewn across the battlefield. After laying the dead to rest, the legions had a stroke of luck and recovered the sacred golden eagle of the 19th legion. Arminius tried to repeat his success and launch another ambush, but he was defeated, and the legions made it to the Rhine to wait out the winter. My take by David Verne. Even though Germanicus failed to capture Arminius, he, his campaigns did a lot toward erasing the memory of the. T- Tettelberg disaster. Whenever a major defeat like that happens, people wonder whether it was one-time slip-up or the beginning of a trend. Germanius was becoming very popular in Rome, and his uncle, Emperor Tiberius, began to worry about a possible coup. So if you missed the segment on the disaster of that we were talking about here of the Tettelberg, uh, basically this guy, Arminius, wiped out three Roman legions in such a manner that the numbers of those legions were, like, they never used them again. And this was kind of basically, we're going back in, and we're going to kick ass and take names, and then they did. But I find it interesting that, like, okay, so you're starting to have some problem among your men. They're starting to mutiny. They're starting to complain about their pay, about their time of service, etc. And you're like, well, you know, they're just bored. Let's go kill some people, and that'll get them back into the game. And it works. And that is the type of thing that has been used throughout history to control humanity. The fact that actually humans are that easy to manipulate is something to think about. Um, the other thing I kind of think about when I look at this is, so you send your general out to do his business, he does it well, and then you start to worry. So it's kind of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If the general's, general's failing... Right, then the barbarians could be at the gates anytime soon, and you need them. But if the general does well and brings back lots of uh, spoils to Rome, then he might be the next guy to be looking at taking over the throne from you. And um, I, I will tell you that this is exactly how political leaders think today. 
They just do it differently because they created a system that was more stable. And you'd, you'd like to believe that they created that more stable system for the good of the people that they're supposed to serve. They created it for their own good. Now all you have to do is build up your war chest and you can keep your, your, your dukedom, right, your duchery, uh, for a long time as a congressman. Or if you're a little bit higher up in the elite, you can keep your, your position as a senator. And you can always keep taking that shot at the, at the, the emperorship, the presidency. But, but the reality is that today the people that are really in charge, you never hear them, you never see them, no one ever talks about them, the people with the money behind the scenes. And even the few big ones they talk about, they are a small piece of the true elite. When we talk about the 1%, we think of it as a small number. Guys, there's an awful lot of people on this planet. The 1% is a pretty big number of people that are really calling the shots. My thoughts by Jack Spierko. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring the show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount. Just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. All right, so as, as we get into talking about this you know, planning for an uncertain future, I want to kind of pull back to something we've talked about a lot in the past because it really is what leads us to design our lives today for tomorrow, and that's called lifestyle design. We talk a lot about what I call lifestyle design around here, and I've used that term because when people hear the term, they get the general idea because the words are common, and I don't just mean you guys on the air. I mean, when I talk to people in daily life, if, if, that, if that term comes up, people are like, You know, they might say, well, tell me more about that or whatever, but they're not, they don't look at you like there's a frog coming out of your ear or something. Like, oh, yeah, I you design. Because people know that the definition of lifestyle is the way in which a person lives. And that design is purpose, planning, and intention and thought behind action. That's what we do is we actually use purpose and planning and intention when we design something. When we take actions, whether that be drawing out the design or implementing the design, at some point, It's only designed if some level of action is taking, either, again, an architecture or a building, right? So that's, that's how to think about lifestyle design. So it simply means to put purpose, planning, intention, and thought into how you live your life. Now, here's my thing. Like, why wouldn't we all do that, right? And I'm going to actually answer that question toward the end of today's show, but I want to open with it for you right now. Just think, why don't we – isn't it ridiculous – that we send children to school, when we count kindergarten, for 13 years of compulsory education. And we might talk to them about you know, planning for college or getting good test grades. But we do almost no training in how to actually put purpose, planning, intention, and thought into how they live their lives. And how to design a life that makes sense for them. Nothing. I mean, zero. There's jack diddly shit in school about designing your life. 
And in our daily lives with our children, unless we're enlightened people that are doing this for themselves, most parents, you know, it's not that they're bad people. They haven't designed their own life. They're certainly not going to start telling their kids how to design. They might tell their kid how to live their life, but they'll start, you know, telling, teaching and empowering their kids how to design their life, how to sit down and think about it. So in any event, I'll leave you with that to think about it until we get toward the end of today's show. But people generally get the basic concept. What people usually struggle with, though, is designing a lifestyle for today that's resilient for tomorrow. Because you can, you can design your life to be pretty good right now, but things can change. And I think we've all had those moments. We're happy. We're really happy with our life as it is. And then one of two things, or one or two things change, and we're off the rails. Sometimes these are external things, like a job loss. So we, we, we're, we're great. We're happy. We have our income. We've set up our house. We're living with our means. We have our new car. We have our free time. We have good friends. We've, we've found a, you know, the beginnings of a family or we're well into the establishment of a family. We're taking the kids to school. We're picking them up. Whatever it is that does it for us, we've got it. And then, boom, you lose your job. Oof. And now all of that stuff comes into question whether you can maintain it. Even if you get a new job, will it be as good? Will you enjoy it? And if you get knocked off of the rails there, how long will it take to put it back to the way that it was? And how much have you lost in that momentum? Because losing momentum in anything, especially in life, sucks. Other times, there's internal factors. Let's stick with employment on this one. Perhaps we had everything I just said, and we thought we liked our job, and then one day we realized, I actually hate my job. I hate I don't just dislike it. I, I don't just pref would just prefer to do something else. I actually loathe my job, is one example. And I convinced myself for all this time that I liked my job because it was enabling me to put my life in order the way that I always wanted to. And I could see progress in my life getting there, getting the car, getting the house, getting the wife, getting the kids, getting the friends, getting the social life, getting the, the backyard garden, getting the whatever it is for you, the free time, whatever. Like you, And then you get that. And when there's no real progress to be made there anymore, or you realize the, there is progress to be made, but this job no longer does anything to move the needle forward, all it does, all it does is maintain the status quo. So now I actually look at the job with a critical eye and say, do I get any fulfillment out of this? Am I making an impact? Is this what I want to do with my life? Is there a real future here? Is there any place for me to move up? Do I want to move up? Are they going to make me move up and I don't want to? I have a family member that's in that position. He's been pushed up against his will. Okay? Doesn't want to be in the position he's in, but they're like, you've been here long enough, turned down enough promotions, you're either getting promoted or you're going out the door, right? Okay? That happens. So something like that, we decide that we don't want to do this anymore. And we realize the only thing this job is doing is letting us pay the bills. And those are only two examples. And no one can plan for everything. But today, things are even more complicated. We all know the next few decades will have more flux in them than anything mankind has yet to experience. Artificial intelligence and automation will replace thousands of jobs. Economic reality will be hitting hard for many governments. We just talked about Illinois yesterday. And that's going to happen. That's not an if at this point. That's a when and what exactly will it look like. Illinois is going to become insolvent. There is no other option. And that's just the first domino in that world. 
And then we have the fact that there are going to be technology gaps that will make finding jobs harder than ever. And I want to kind of talk to you about something that I keep here. We need to train people for the future. We need to train people for these new jobs and stuff. I just want you to think. And I'm not being mean to these people, but I just want you to think. I want you to use the gray matter between your ears, and I want you to think about some of the people that you would call less than mentally optimum that you see on a daily basis, either online, on TV, or in real life. And I want you to think throughout your life. Take a moment and pause right now and think of the type of people that I'm talking about. Think about the kind of people who in their 30s still can't use remotely proper English. I know I fall back on some dialects and something sometimes from my past growing up, you know, all over the place from the coal region. Why don't you, right? And in Florida with yous and, and I mean, or y'all and, and yous from Pennsylvania. But I, I can speak basic coherent English and most of you can too. But when you listen to people that can't even use basic coherent English or when you listen to people that seem so brain dead that you don't know how they actually make it through the day without killing themselves. When you hear about people that are so stupid, they do something like put a child in a car to punish them and kill their child. And while they are a dirtbag, they didn't kill the, mean to kill their kid. They just are that stupid. Okay, And you think about the great number of these stupid people. But these stupid people can... Take a box, put a piece of tape on it, put a piece of label on it, stick it on a, a dolly, and put it in a truck. Right? They can, however, ineptly stand at the, the cash register and say, Welcome to McDonald's, may I take your order? There are things these people can do. These technology gaps, and we're talking about training people to move up in the technology gaps. Do you see these people as being able to adapt? Now, I know that everybody kind of starts out with an unwritten slate, and if they had the right opportunities as a child and a better education, they may be further ahead than they are. But you can't change the past. You can only change the present and the future. Yes, you can change the present right now. You can change the present. You can fast forward. You can rewind this and change your present. You can punch yourself in the face. You can have a nice drink. You can change the present and the future, but you cannot change the past. So these people are there. And that's going to be a huge weight to be pulled by those that can adapt. And even those that are good at what they do, relatively intelligent, can conjugate a verb, etc., do understand basic common sense. Some of these technology gaps are going to be very difficult for them to bridge. And people like myself, I struggle with this and I try not to let it happen to me. But when the older you get, the more you get what we call set in our ways. And some of that is, this is complicated to learn, and I don't want to. I don't want to. I could, but what I'm doing still works, so I don't want to learn this new thing or this new way or this new technology or this new you know, method. Now, what the problem with that is, for many people, is that stoicism will work for a time. But you're, let's say you're with technology level A, And when B comes out, you've been using A your whole life and you're not interested. Now, maybe A has lasted for 20 years. B is brand new, so you think B will be around for 20 years. But what happens is B, in this new world, is phasing out in five. And C is coming online and you're still using A. C phases out in two and goes to D. D phases out and goes to E in another year. You're now five levels back, but here's the problem. 
the people that are using E walked the bridge and you didn't. And there's no opportunities in the bridge anymore. And making the leap from A to E is actually far more complicated than having made the leap from A to B and B to C and maybe even C over D directly to E. And that is happening to people in the tech field right now, programmers, etc. When, when I worked with Neil Franklin with Franklin Spherical Media and Data Workforce and all the other things we did together, um, Data Workforce was a contract, in fact still is, a contract-based service where you would say, we need a tech with these skills and these abilities to come work on this project. And we had people that were cutting edge, and we had people also that were legacy people. They could work on technology that was so old that no one barely was left that, re that was around that knew how to work on it. And even people that had the experience didn't want to work on it. They didn't want to work on it because they had, they had progressed and they wanted to work on projects that paid more. And then eventually the legacy projects paid more. Because there were so few people left that knew how and were willing to do the job. And still, the people that had the legacy experience would not go back because these are smart people. They knew they had to stay at the forefront, because it's that. but we had this group of legacy guys, and we were happy to place them. And then the opportunities just got less and less and less and less. And many of them then were left out in the cold. Because they were five generations of technology back in, let's say, wireless communications. And they couldn't adapt. And they had no experience. And they were competing with people that had lots of experience. And, and, and the next level of technology was coming out. And there was nobody with experience in it. But what did, what did, the, what did the employers want? What did the companies want? They wanted people with, with a lot of experience in the last layer. Not people with lots of experience from technology they hadn't used for 15 years. That type of thing's accelerating. And it, and it all comes down to this. There's major shifts coming in every sector. But major sectors, education. The education sector is going to shift in ways, and it's not going to be a shift. It's going to be like, it's going to bifurcate and then trifurcate and then quadricate and keep going. It's going to split. Because people are going to realize, oh, there's all these other options now. And that means there's going to be a whole lot of people that, that fancy themselves educators, but they're nothing but script readers. Most of our, our, our school teachers are working off a script provided to them. If you took, if you said, hey, you know what? You know what? We've heard you, teachers. We've heard you. And you're right. But what we're doing is bullshit. Decisions should be made at the local level, and there's nothing more local than the classroom. You're teaching second grade. You know the basics of what second graders are supposed to be able to do. You must know it. You've been doing it forever. We're going to take that lesson plan that we mandated on you. We're going to just take it away. And you set your own rules in your own classroom. There'd be like a pretty good segment, like 15, 20% that would just cheer glory hallelujah and unleash the passion they've been waiting to unleash in education their whole lives, the reason they became a teacher. And there'd be about 80% that wouldn't know what to do. 10% would fumble through it and make it okay, and 60% to 50% would absolutely just quit by the end of the first year. I believe that in talking to the people in this, this profession. Well, what happens when that little safe spot where you can just ride the wave that way starts to get whittled down? And the only place you can find a job are all those inner city schools that they talk about you being a hero for teaching at, but you don't really want to do it. 
Because that'll be, be the last ones to get converted, though it should be the first ones, but it'll be the last ones. So that's how it might hit education. Technology, we just kind of covered that, so I don't want to go deep, much deeper into it. But let's understand that we're talking about every technology. Every technology. Down to social media. Um, I think we have a wonderful forum, the Survival Podcast Forum, that's built on, you know, it's old school tech, though. I mean, it's, it, and I'm not even talking about PHPB, PHPBB or, no, SMF, Simple Machines Forum was the software that I used when I built the forum uh, nine years ago. But basically, that type of a forum, those have been around since, you've got mail, okay? That's how long they've been around. And our forum, we built up to this massive level of activity. There's, you know, hundreds of thousands of posts there. Friendships, bonding, all kinds. But right now, it's nowhere near as active as it was five years ago. Why? Because people have migrated in their online activity to platforms like Facebook. And see, people are so people at Facebook are arrogant enough to believe today that they're not going to migrate away from there next. We're moving to an entire new level of the way people communicate with each other. So that's another example of technology shifting and changing, which will be how you how you get in connection with people, how you find a job, etc. LinkedIn is a major tool for that today. But they're dying. They're dying. They're trying to enter. They've added, I just noticed now they've added chat like Facebook has, like they've added Messenger, like so you could message your contacts. If your contacts mean anything to you on LinkedIn, you get them into your email book or your phone or whatever, and you actually can just contact them. for. You don't need LinkedIn for that. You don't need yet another place to store your contacts. LinkedIn was basically a place to find each other and connect with each other and see what this guy was about. Maybe ask this guy to introduce you to that guy. What kind of, what kind of new technology is going to enable that? So you, if you just keep going with technology, like every technology you can think of is going to be altered and changed. And that's going to change. Like, See, people don't even realize that the, these major shifts that occur. You, when you, you think of like going from VHS tapes to, and DVDs to online media... Right to you, it doesn't really seem like a big change. It didn't really hurt the water in your pool very much, right? But what if you were the guy that invested in a blockbuster franchise, or you set up, you know, Jim Bob's uh, video store? That shift put just thousands of people, independent business people, out of business unless they saw it coming and figured out how to adapt and use the storefront, use the customer base to move to something else. And most didn't do it. Most didn't do it. They're, they're you know, busting tires now or something. They don't. They, 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 most people can't adapt to these changes because when they see the change coming and it's uncomfortable, they put their hands over their eyes and say, it's not coming, it's not real, it's going to be okay. Perception bias, right? Normalcy bias. Those two things, they bite you hard. Manufacturing. We've had robots in manufacturing since I was in school, but nothing like what's coming. We have, we have factories in China. See, everybody thinks it's about the cost of labor. It's not about the cost of labor. It's about efficiency. It's about the fact that managing people is a pain in the ass. And it's about the fact that most of these jobs are unfulfilling, horrible jobs that people don't really want to do, so they never give their best. And a robot just shuts up and does it. There was a factory in China where they started putting automation in because people were killing themselves in the factory. They were like just getting tired and going to a catalog and just bailing over. They were so miserable with their work. <laughs> and it, 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 so what you have to understand is that all of this 
capability and technology and evolution that can be used for manufacturing or service or anything that's the kind of job that people take because they can get a job, but they don't really want it, they're going to go hard on that. The most miserable part of being an entrepreneur before I got into this was employing people. Let me tell you something about yourself as an employee. And this may or may not be true about you, but it's true about most of you, whether you like it or not. You have no idea how hard it is for your employer to ensure that you'll have a job next year. You have no idea how much you really cost your employer. You have no idea how your little inconvenience in your life that means you have to take a day off actually creates a chain of events that causes misery for your employer. You probably not. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. I'll come off of you now because I don't want to offend you, and you may not. Most of the audience is pretty enlightened, but most people that have a job, especially people like we were talking about at the beginning, the kind of dim bulbs, they think companies just have money. Like, go to a company and get a job, and they'll pay you because they have money. Like, that's just how it works. Like, once you have a name on a door, you just have money. They don't even understand that there has to be a source of revenue, and they don't understand all the costs associated with. What it takes to balance that, the risks involved. And so, in general, employers don't like employees. Now, let me explain what I mean by that because it can be taken very much the wrong way. When I had people work for me, I busted my ass to help them out. I tried to be a good mentor, and I cared about them as human beings and individuals. There was a time when I had a partner come to me and say, Listen, this department you're heading right now, you need to take... $30,000 out of that department. And all the people that were working for me made, you know, okay, but not great money. And I was making great money. And I took a $30,000 pay cut. I said, how long does this have to go? He said, six months, if you can get it turned back around. I said, fine, take it out of my paycheck. So what? I said, just, just take it off my salary. I'll just take a $30,000 pay cut for six months. And it was dead silence. Like, he thinks, like, I, I think initially... He thought it was a negotiation tactic, like that I didn't think I could do it, so I was going to throw this crazy idea out, and then he would say, well, it doesn't have to be that much or something. And once he realized I was serious, they went ahead and did it. And I went back and told my team, guys, this is what I just did for you. Now get your shit together, because if we're not turned around at the end of six months, I'm not continuing with that. I'll reinstate my pay, and I'll cut one of you, period, and we'll be par." And everybody busted their ass, and we turned it around. So when I say I don't like employees, if I really didn't like the individual, I wouldn't do something like that. And I know you say, well, that's that's you, Jack. Most people that you know run businesses won't do that. No, most people that run businesses successfully do shit like that all the time. That's how you bridge those gaps. That's how you get through. That's how you win loyalty. But in the end, I don't like employees because employees go, but I have to go do this, I have to go do that. My kids get graduating kindergarten and I have to take work off on Friday to go to a kindergarten graduation. I hurt my finger. I, you know, whatever, name it. I need you to work extra this week. I can't because I made a promise already. And I'm not even saying that those things aren't important in life, but I'm saying as an employer trying to manage things, I hate all of that. I hate that you take vacation even though I believe you should have vacation time because if it's a small business especially, it's very inconvenient. If you take a vacation from HP, it's not a big deal. There's like 60,000 employees there. If you take a vacation from a small business, 
with five employees, you're 20% of the workforce just gone for two weeks. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying, can you see how if I could replace you with a robot that would never take vacation, that would be a good thing? And another sector that's going to get hit over with this is transportation. And everything I said about employees under manufacturing applies to education, technology, transportation, you name it. Employers in general don't like the requirement to manage employees. If you, if you think about it this way, in a place where business actually has to get done, like a private business, you generally want to get as much done with as few people as possible. The only place where people are like, I am so happy that I have built my department to a hundred people is in bureaucracies, is in government, where it doesn't matter if you fail. You're allowed to fail. It's okay. In the real world where you're actually measuring success by, after we've done all this shit, is there profit at the end of it? Well, if you're, that, that's where you start having to come down to those, those hard, you know, hard knuckled decisions. And, and that ends up being, I want to do this and I want to do right by the people who work for me. But in the end, if the company doesn't make a profit, if the company doesn't make a profit, I'm not going to be able to keep doing right by any of them. So if I can get rid of three, and I know I'm going to be able to keep paying the other seven well out of my little ten head headcount company, I'll get rid of those three. And if it also happens to give me less grief and less to worry about, because now I've automated the process, I haven't dumped the responsibility those three people had on the other seven. What I've done is I've actually employed technology to do what those three people were doing. And those other seven are going to definitely have to adapt because that technology is probably going to have requirements for them as well. That's what we're dealing with. And it applies to everything. Major shifts are coming in everything. So I think what we have to do now is we have to ask ourselves, what has always basically worked? What has always basically been a key to success? What, what has always been... Um, proven successful throughout all of these fluxes. So like if you go all the way back to when this country was was very very young, uh, when we had President Washington and President Jefferson, we have huge changes that occurred between that late 17 early 1800s and you know the time right before the Civil War up to about 1850. Major technological innovations, major uh, automation processes that take place. Major disruptions. Then we had a civil war. And then after that war was over, we went on another tear of innovation all the way up to 1900. But in 1905, when you went to New York City, there were still mostly horses for transportation. But by 1930, there weren't many horses left. That was an acceleration of change. And then from 1930 up to World War II, we dealt with the Great Depression, but we still had continuous technological evolution. Because if you look at the way World War I was fought versus the way World War II was fought, you can see it in, in its most horrifying mannerisms. And then World War II ended. And we we'll just, you know, we rolled through the years of Vietnam and Korea up into the 80s. And things changed a little bit differently. It almost slowed down a little bit. We had the space race and the nuclear arms race and all, but there was almost a little bit of a pause 
in the changes of technology that people experience in our lives. We went from black and white TV to color TV, but the TVs were still big and bulky. There were computers coming online all over the place, but they were at very, very high levels. There were still typing pools. You know, giant groups of women that sat in rooms and, and took dictation and typed it. Or took a memo and made, you know, copies of it and stuff like that. It was, there was typing pools into the 70s. And then the 80s came. And pretty soon, there was a computer on every desktop. And then the internet came. And that accelerated. And we ended up where we are now. That's a pretty long journey. A lot of flux in there. But what were the things that worked for people, that people found success with throughout that entire period of time? The number one one is entrepreneurship. And a lot of people would say real estate investing. Folks, that's entrepreneurship. That's entrepreneurship. People that created their own businesses, and I am not putting down the concept, but I am not including the concept of being self-employed. If you, if you think about it, the true entrepreneurs even made it through the, the, you know, the dot com bust and the, the, the crash of 08. But you hear plenty of people saying, I, I, I was doing really well and, and, and I had my own business and I was in, uh, you know, remodeling or custom home building or something like that. But most of those people were really just glorified self-employed. They didn't have a real product of their own. They didn't have the flexibility to change when the market changed. They didn't have the ability to look and see a problem and just go in a different direction. If you're truly an entrepreneur and you're in the business of making widgets and you realize that the widget is about to be obsoleted, you can actually start making you know, the widget beta G or something like that. Or you can go a completely different direction and just use the fact that you have a customer base and people that pay attention to you, you have social capital, etc., to springboard into other things before that disaster comes. Or you can liquidate your widget business to somebody dumb enough to buy it because the widget business is booming, but you know the widget business is about to go bust. And then you can take that windfall and then start something else. That's entrepreneurship. You know, people that say, well, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm my own business. Well, what do you do? I'm, you know, I do Jack's drywall. So you manufacture and distribute drywall? No, I, I hang drywall and, 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 you know, whatever. And, You know, and how many employees do you have? Well, it's just me and it's one guy that is my helper. And then, and then when we need more people, we go pick them up down at the, you know, the quick mart or whatever. We pick up immigrant labor and we go to do that. So you're self-employed. You're, you're, you're not in business. You're not in business. You're self-employed. And that's not a bad thing. And, you know, being part of the 1099 generation, not a bad thing, especially in other walks of life, some of the computer programming and things like that. But it's not entrepreneurship. If you don't get to make the call when you get up in the morning exactly what you do and how you do it and where you do it and if you do it, it's not entrepreneurship, it's self-employment. And self-employment is better than employment in many ways. It also has its downsides. When I talk about what's worked, though, is entrepreneurs. Because if you can successfully build a business, you now have the skill of building businesses. Do you understand that? Like, if you can successfully build a cabinet, and, and it's a nice-looking cabinet, you can now go build more cabinets. And as you build your next cabinet, you'll probably get better at it. 
And now you're going to be now that you've you've built a several cabinets and they all came out okay. Now you'll actually build a custom cabinetry out, you know, I don't know what you would call it, but a full set of custom cabinets that fit in and, you know, go around a refrigerator or whatever. And then you, you, you learn how to do the trim and now you know how to do that. Well, now you're comfortable working with expensive exotic wood and then you've got a track record and you, you see how that goes forward. That's still more of a self-employment mindset, but you see what I'm saying? The skill set is cabinet, cabinet making. And, and fitting and installing and all of that stuff. But once you've built a business, a, a true business, where you've been able to define a product, define a revenue model, execute on that revenue model, market it, launch it, and run it successfully for a length of time, a few years. Well then, if you go to start another business, you know exactly what to do. And a person with an MBA coming out of college, even a good college with the best MBA program that's never run a business, is a child compared to you in the world of entrepreneurship. And that's why entrepreneurs have flourished. Because when things started to fall apart in the business they're in, even if it crashed on them, instead of panicking saying, I'm going to get a job, they just, they, they, first of all, they already knew the crash was coming, so they'd already mitigated it in some way. But they would look around them and say, what are my tools? What are my opportunities? So I think entrepreneurship is the number one survival skill going forward. And the business doesn't have to be high-tech or laser, you know, laser this or that. And you really have to get out of the fantasy world of, well, I have my, my business card that says CEO. I knew so many people when I, were in the, when I was in the cable industry that were employees And they wanted to you know, break away from a company and get a few guys they know in another company and start a cabling company, right? And, and they would come to me by this point when I was in sales, and I had a real understanding of the operations of the company and the finances of the company. And I'd say, you guys have no idea what you're doing. And you know, the one guy that wanted to do this one time, he was the operations manager of the company. I'm like, I know they call you that. And you coordinate with the project manager and all, and you make sure, and you're good at what you do, but you really don't understand the operations of the company. Because the ownership is maintaining that position. They've never given it to you. And because I'm in sales and because I get paid off financials, and because I, I have a financial look into every job, I see the other side, and I know you don't know what you're getting yourself into. And believe me, they started a company. They even got some investors behind them, and they went broke in one year because they didn't understand that level of things. They, they weren't entrepreneurs. They had a dream of owning a company, but they didn't have an understanding of the skill set, and they weren't really passionate about that. They just thought, I'll be able to write my own paycheck and set my own hours, and I'll be the bigwig. But that doesn't really get it done unless you, you understand the entrepreneurship. So that's something that's always worked. Another thing that's always worked and it goes hand-in-hand hand with entrepreneurship is adaptability and flexibility. The people that cling to technology A, when B is coming on board and they don't learn the new technology, they, they become dinosaurs and they get killed. They go extinct. People that can't be flexible in their lives, that are unwilling to make a hard decision like, okay, to maintain what we have, we're going to have to move or we're going to have to give this up, or we're going to have to start doing this, or we're going to have to cut that. If you can't adapt and flex, you are dead in the next 20 years. I mean, D-E-A, dead, doornail, dead. Because the, the, the flux is going to be such that no one shall be spared. 
Not even me. I will have to adapt the way we do this show to survive the next 20 years. And for those that have been wondering, yeah, that's my time horizon. About 20 years. About 20 more years of this stuff is what I have planned. I'll be in my 60s. And at that point, I'll retire. But I can't just keep doing things this way. And I don't know exactly what I'll have to adapt to or be flexible with next to take this to the level that will sustain it and allow me the freedom of not having employees. But as I see the opportunities, I'll capitalize on them and I'll do it. I'll try things that won't work. I've tried things that didn't work. I've tried things that are home runs. And I'll keep doing that because I have to. Because it's passion in me that wants to continue to do what I do every day. And I could go do a different business. I could go do a different business. I could start a different business tomorrow. And two years from now, be so financially ahead of where I can ever be here. But I won't be happy. So then I have to adapt and flex so that this will work. And that's what you're going to have to do. Whether it's employment, self-employment, entrepreneurship, investing, you're going to have to be adaptable and flexible and learn new things. The other thing that's always worked, and it's going to be very different than the first two, is living off the land, hunting, gathering, and growing. My grandparents lived through the Great Depression with a garden, and I grew food in that same soil long after the Depression ended. When you, like... When you watch TV shows, and not the completely non-reality TV shows, stuff that touches on reality, like um, there's a good show uh, by the guy that eats all the bugs and stuff, Andrew Zimmer. He's uh, the, the Bizarre Foods was his show, where he'd go to you know Thailand and eat uh, a thousand-year-old egg or the ass out of a skunk or something like that. He's kind of had to evolve. Like you can only eat gross things for so long and impress people, and he travels all over the place. He has this new show called Delicious Destinations. And sometimes it's like restaurants and stuff like that. But sometimes he'll go, like, I just watched one on the Upper Peninsula of, of Michigan. And most of the people there are uh, Finnish descent and how they're living. And you could see that the, you know, the copper mines were the big, copper and iron mines were huge in the Upper Peninsula. And those all went away decades ago. All went away. And they, what they said is when they, when they left, they took the jobs with them. I didn't like the way they phrased it. It could almost be like, the employers were so greedy, they packed all the jobs into a case and took them with them. What really happened is when they weren't there, they weren't there to provide the jobs anymore, and therefore there were no jobs. And there wasn't a lot going on, and there's still not much going on in a lot of these places. But people, they work together, they hunt, they fish, and they grow. And they preserve, and they cook. And I've seen that work for people that have high-paying computer jobs living in urban you know, homestead environments to dirt-ass poor hillbillies and rednecks living in trailer parks. And it's always worked. And it's always been the people that were the most resilient were the ones that not only did it, but were doing it when times were good and just rocked through times that were tough. In World War II, the people of this country were told, plant victory gardens. People of Europe, were, uh, Britain were told, plant victory gardens. You have to ask yourself, why'd they ever stop? Because in 1900, they wouldn't have been told to do that. 
The suburbanization of America had begun prior. I mean, it exploded after World War II, but it began prior to World War II. And people moved, and then they realized, hey, there's a, there's a shopping mart down the road, and Dad has a car, and you just go down there and get it. It's easier than that, and the farmers are taking care of it, and they all have tractors now, and Dad works till 6 o'clock at night, and Mom has the house to upkeep, because that's how it was back then. And people were having three and four kids, and the kids had school, and they had to work hard and go to school and get good grades so they could go to college, and it just kind of atrophied away. But as soon as there was a need... Even the state said, hey, 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 get going, grow this stuff, get chickens, have them lay eggs, put the chickens on one side this year and that side. Now all the old wisdom came back. Well, who do you think was best off? The people that had to do it for the first time, or the first time in 20 years, or the people that were like, okay, we'll keep doing that. So that's why I'm so big on teaching you to grow, produce, and procure your own food. Learn the land around you, be able to forage, And it's just a better way to live. And it's always worked. The next one is a solid conservative to risk balance. Now, when I say conservative here, I don't mean Republicans. I don't mean anything political. I mean conservative in its truest words. So when you look at an investment to take a conservative approach, but have a balance with a willingness to take risk. It is never the people with a gambler's mindset that became icons of the investing world. And it was never the people that were completely and totally conservative. It was the people that had a good balance there. And whether we're talking stocks or cryptocurrency or business or life decisions, that is so critically important. And it's the people that get ahead. They don't have a Vegas mentality and they don't have a, a hold on tight and worry mentality. They're not people that follow Dave Ramsey's protocol for investing, but they are people that follow Dave Ramsey's protocol for debt. Get rid of it, eliminate it, you know, that type of thing. I think it's a great debt elimination program. But investing is just buy index mutual funds and invest 15% of your money and don't worry about it and hold on to it and it'll all be okay. That is incredibly risky And it's masquerading as being incredibly conservative. Incredibly conservative is you take all your money and stick it under your mattress and don't do anything with it. When you, you could be out just buying and flipping cars. I didn't want to be, oh, I got $20,000, I don't know what to do with it. Well, go, go do something with it. What do I invest it in, Jack? You! Figure out something to do with it. And don't let it burn a hole in your pocket. Don't like feel like you got to do it now. Start evaluating when you find something where you've run the numbers and you know it'll work, test it with you know 20% of that money, 30% of that money, not 100% of that money. Prove it out. Get better at it and do it again. That's a solid conservative to risk balance. The, cons the person that's too conservative won't use any of it to do anything with it. And the person that's too, too risk-oriented will throw it all on the line, and if it hits, hallelujah, it, it hit 21 black, I win. Give me my money, right? The problem with that is the person that has that predisposition will do that again and again and again until they lose, which usually doesn't take very long. And when they lose, they've lost everything. 
The person that's too conservative will never grow beyond their basic day-to-day needs because they're unwilling to stretch and risk and be flexible and be entrepreneurial in mindset, if not in, in complete deed. And then despite all that, the other thing that's always worked is saving. Not saving everything, but saving something. Because in all of this, something will come along. Some huge opportunity will come along, and I, I can't tell you how many people say, man, back when Lucent went down to at 75 cents, if I would have bought a bunch of that, I could have become a millionaire. I'm dating it now, huh? That's a pretty long time ago. And you say to them, well, how much cash did you have on hand back then? And most of them didn't have any. It wouldn't have mattered. Remember I started out and said if we could see the future, we were certain about the future, we could get very wealthy? Well, unless you have the capital to execute on the opportunity, knowing the opportunity doesn't help you. Remember what I said about if you knew every winner of every uh, NFL Super Bowl? Well, what if you only have $5 to bet? I'll go borrow money to bet it. Oh, but remember, this isn't where it works out perfectly, and you do know. You just see the opportunity. And if we're smart about the opportunity, we don't take it like a bet. So that analogy breaks down at that point. What we do is we invest in the opportunity, we watch, and we have an exit strategy. We have an exit strategy, and we have a goal. We have an exit strategy on the other side of the goal, and we have an exit strategy when we don't reach the goal. That is a balance between conservatism and risk orientation. But we have to have savings. We have to have fuel to put in the car to get it to go down the road. So we have to be saving something. And sometimes that also means that I've taken the money, I've invested it in something, it's done really, really well. It might do better in the future, but I just don't know. It might actually fail somewhat, and be worth going back into. So I'll exit the position, and I'll wait for the opportunity. Those of you that listened to yesterday's show, you should know exactly what I'm talking about in my life right now. So now that's sitting there is cash instead of an equity, and I can take that cash, and I can go back into that same equity, or if another opportunity that's better comes up, or I can split it, or I can use a part of it, or a piece of it, but I don't put it all on the table and roll the dice one time and hope. That's dumb. But I sometimes want to move into positions where it is a bit of a roll of the dice, and I have to have the ability to buy some chips to play the game. So savings always has worked. So those, to me, are the five things throughout history of our country that have always worked and I believe will work going into this uncertain future. Entrepreneurship, adaptability and flexibility, hunting, gathering, growing, or the ability to feed yourself, a solid conservative risk balance, and a willingness to save. And sometimes a willingness to convert investment into savings for a time. Tie your boat to the dock and wait the storm out. That's what I did in 2008. That's what I taught you guys to do in 2008. All the way back then. Get your money out of the market. Put it in cash. Just wait. There'll be plenty of opportunities. Those of you that did that, are very thankful people. I've heard from you. Those of you that didn't, <laughs> grumble grouse, right? But that's, I mean, that was obvious. It's not always obvious. You have to keep your ear to the ear to the you know to the road and listen for what's coming. Ear down to that railroad track. All right. So, with this, what are the basics of lifestyle design? 
It's actually really freaking simple. It, it, it's actually only four steps. It's define the goals. And this is, it, it amazes me. People think that they're in charge of their lives and they don't even know what their goals are. Now they might have a goal or two. Oh, I want a good job. Great. So does everybody else that's not an original thought. And that is not really a goal because that is a, a, just seen as obvious, right? So why do you want a good job? Because I want money. Great. We're moving forward. What do you want to do with the money? Now we can start defining the goals. I want a nice house. Okay, what is a nice house for you? What does that mean? What is nice house? Because what nice house means to me and nice house means to you, I guarantee you they're different. I guarantee you they're different. In this audience, probably pretty similar, but still different. In the general population versus me, very, and you, very, very different. A lot of things that people think of as being wonderful, we're like, yeah, I don't want that. Well, everybody's that way. So what, what means nice house? How long do you want to pay on this house? How much do you want to pay for this house? Are your goals to have this nice house for a time to get started? Or are they to have a house that you're going to put deep roots down and stay for the rest of your life? Unless something comes up that changes that. Do you want kids? If so, how many? And you can't get too specific because maybe God doesn't have that plan for you. Maybe you're like, well, I want three kids. And God goes like, yeah, dude, sorry, you're going to slip and fall and hurt something after two and you're, or whatever, right? Or that wife that's going to be perfect for you, she's going to want two and you're going to listen to what she said. Like that, those are all realistic things, but at least some idea of that. Well, how do you want to spend your weekends? How do you want to spend your evenings? When you retire, what do you want it to be like? And don't tell me you want to be the silver-haired you know, guy that looks like he belongs on the cover of GQ still, walking up the beach with his hot-looking silver-haired wife when you're 70, because that's not going to happen. That's not how it works when we're 70. So, you know, and do you want to be 70 when you retire? Or do you want to be partially retired at 50? Or do you want a lifestyle business that lets you live like you're retired even though you're working every day? What do you want? You have to define it. You have to define, you cannot design, like somebody says, well, design me a house. Okay. Come back to you with, I guarantee you whatever, come back to you with, you'll be like, I don't want that. Well, why not? It only has two bedrooms. Well, how many bedrooms did you want? Well, I wanted four. Good to know. Go back and design your house. Here you go. Kitchen's too small. Oh, so you'd like a big kitchen. Yeah. Okay, then come back to you and you go, holy shit, where'd the living room go? Well, I just figured you wanted a big kitchen, so I just took away the living room and made the whole thing a kitchen. For me to design you a house, you have to tell me what's important. Do you want two stories or one? Do you want it to look modern or rustic? Is it going to be a big piece of land or a small piece of land? Is the land going to be oriented in a rectangle or a square? Is it going to be on a slope? Do you want to face the road? Do you want a wraparound porch? Do you want a garage? Do you want a detached garage? Do you not care about a house for your car and you want to use all the housing for people? What do you want? And it amazes me how many people they're say they're unhappy in their life and you say, what do you want? They don't flip and know. They have no idea. They couldn't tell you. If you gave them a week to do it, they couldn't figure it out because they've never thought about it. So you have to define the goals. Number two, define the steps to get there honestly with yourself. That's the most important part. 
Because this, I'm, I'm great, I'm wonderful, and gee whiz, people like me, and the law of intention, and the law of attraction. You know what? There's something to all of that. The law of attraction works. I've used it. It works. But it doesn't actually attract things. What it does is it puts your attention state in a, play, in, in a state of hyper-observancy. And when the opportunity to get what you want appears, you recognize it where often it would just pass right by you and you would never see it. That's how the law of attraction works. But in the end, there's work that must be done. Like the question we had yesterday on savings. What are some technological ways that I can use to save money? No, it doesn't work that way, dude. And, I want to, and at least the guy had a goal. Six to 12 months of income. Let's start with six. In fact, you know what? Let's start with 30. 30 days. Let's start with one month. Because we got to get to one month before we get to six months. So let's get to one month. And then you have to say to yourself, self, what is one month of income for me? That should be pretty easy. You'll look at a pay stub. It'll tell you. Now, if you're really smart, you, you actually say, I want one month of expenses. And if that number is bigger than your income, then you got a problem to fix first. But you say one month of expenses. And then you say, this is how much money is left after expenses. And then some of that has to be for fun, saving, investing. But for this other savings bucket, this is how much I have available. How long will it take till I have 30 days worth of my expenses saved up? And then if you don't like that number, you have to sacrifice some things and move some things around to move that number up and get there faster. And we get to 30 days. And then we say, well, I really want six months. That's a long-term goal. Okay, well, we just did 30 days. Let's do that again. Is there any way we can get there faster? But the reality is whatever the number is you're able to save each week is how much the balance will go up each week by. And there's only two ways to change that. Increase income or reduce expenses. That's it. And you have to be honest about, with yourself about that goal. If your goal is, I want a house like X, Y, and Z, and a house like that costs $200,000, and there's an income level and a credit score and a down payment and a cushion of savings that you feel comfortable with actually moving into it with, and all of those things have to be there so that you can have that house, then you have to define those things. You have to say, these are the steps that I need to get the things that get me to the goal. Honestly. And you know, people don't want to do that because it's scary. Because all of a sudden you're like, shit, that's going to take three years. Well, you better get started on it then there, uh, Charlie. Because if you do, you'll figure out how to make it two or one and a half. It's amazing. Once you put the plan in action, once you actually are honest about it, and when you don't like the numbers, generally it, when you start acting on them anyway, you do things to change and accelerate the numbers. So the next one is you prioritize the steps. I want a house. I want a job. I want this. Well, let's see. Let's see. Let's think about that there, Chuck. All right, I'm saying Charlie because my dog Charlie's sitting here with me hanging out while I'm broadcasting today. So let's say, Chuck, you, you want a house and a job. I'm going to suggest, I'm just going to suggest, that it would be a good idea for you to prioritize getting the job over getting the house. Because until you get the job, because one, one of the steps in getting the house is going to be getting the job. Well, this job does not pay enough to get that house. Do you have another job lined up? No, then take that freaking job, go out and meet some people, and start doing whatever you can with that job to save some money and build an employment history, and your next step now becomes a priority of finding a better job. See? That's how this, if this is so simple, this shit should be taught in seventh grade. 
Okay? That's how simple this shit is. Somebody should have told you the things I'm telling you today when you were sitting in 7th grade. And you know what? You would have took your head up off of your arms or you were sleeping in class. And went, holy shit, this guy's telling the truth. Give me more. That's what kids would do if we told them this in school. Give me more. Just say more things like that. But no, we don't do that shit. So I got to do it now. So you prioritize the steps. Define the goal. Define the steps to get there honestly with yourself. Then prioritize the steps. Which comes first? Where do I put most of my effort to get there? Paying debt off. Dave Ramsey's a genius at it. Prioritize the steps. I want to get out of debt. I have five debts. Great. So you have to pay them all off, yeah? Okay, pay the smallest one off first. Pay minimum on everything else and focus like a laser beam on that small one. Get that one paid off. But this one has a bigger interest rate. Shut up. Shut up. Prioritize the steps. The most doable thing, the most actionable item, is paying off the piddly little one. Pay it off. Three months later, I got it paid off. What do I do now? Take all of the money you were paying on that, go to the next smallest debt, and drop it onto that one. But this one's the big one. Shut up. Do it. A couple months later, that one got paid off. I can't believe how fast that one got paid off because you compounded the payment instead of compounding the interest. So then you, then by then they work it out. Oh, so I go to the third smallest one, right? Yep. And by the time you get to the last one, it gets paid off like that because you had all that money compounding on it because you prioritize the steps. Then the most important one out of all, after you prioritize the steps, you actually start making those payments. You begin taking action. That's it. That's the whole thing. This is the basics of lifestyle design. This is about designing the life that you, 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 you want and that you can have even with an uncertain feature. Define the goals. Define the steps to get there honestly with yourself. Prioritize the steps and begin taking action. That's it. That's the whole thing. Congratulations. You have graduated. Dun, 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 whatever the graduation music is, right? You've, you've graduated. You have now graduated kindergarten. Get off, get off the butt and go do it. That's all you need. You've graduated. Yes, you've graduated. At least you've graduated by the standards of academia. You know what to do. If I gave you a test now, uh, a quiz that said, you know, answer these questions, you know, What major shifts are coming? What has always worked and will likely still work? What are the basics of lifestyle design? You could pass that test. You'd get an A. This is a fundamental flaw with education. This is an aside here. It's a fundamental flaw with education. The fact that you know it doesn't mean you can do it. The fact that you understand what algebraic equation might be used to determine uh, the span length of a bridge doesn't mean you can build that bridge doesn't even mean you can design the bridge. Even if you can do that one equation, you still have to put the whole thing into practice. And, and, and that is a big part of why people don't do it, is because you actually have to do it for it to work. You can teach people this shit, and they can regurgitate it. It doesn't mean that they're capable of actually getting it done. But, but here are the simple answers. There's four simple answers to why people don't actually do this. The first one is it requires sacrifice. People have been taught, especially in this day and age, that sacrifice is bad. I just had a recent conversation with my son and daughter-in-law. Uh, we went to Lowe's together. He bought a new house. They need a lawnmower. Uh, they need a weed eater because they have to maintain their lawn. So we were there for that and some other things, and she wanted to get a, a doormat. There's a lot of doormats for $10, $20. Bucks. 
She wanted some doormat, some dingball doormat that was, you know, like $55. And he's like, that's a lot of money. She's like, you're buying a lawnmower. He's like, no, we're buying a lawnmower. And they had a little bit of a, a tussle there. And she said, you never let us spend money. And, and my response to that was, well, do you have more money than you know what to do with? She said, no. I said, then he does let you spend money. You guys do spend money, and you spend more than you should. Right now, you're making purchases because they're needs, and you've saved some money up to be able to do that. But you still need to be conservative with your spending. And she had told me prior when I'd said, like, this is what you need to do or that. And she said, you guys do better than us, so that it's not as easy for us. And I brought it up. I said, do you know why? Or you know how you always tell us that we, we're doing better than you, and that's why it's easier for us? She said, yeah. I said, how do you think we got there? And then by now, I pulled her aside. We were talking nicely, under, oh, you understand that, and not being called out in front of other people. I pulled her aside. I was talking to her just one-on-one. So the only you understand that the man you're married to was raised to think like he's thinking. He's looking out for you. He's looking out for you. And when you spend recklessly, you end up in reckless ways. In the end, she actually seemed appreciative, like she got it. But you know she didn't like it. And that's not because she's a bad person. I love my daughter-in-law. She didn't like it because no one likes to sacrifice. No one likes to give things up. No one likes to give things up. Sometimes things are hard to give up. You know that little story I told you earlier where I gave up $30,000 of my salary? You think that was easy to do? You think I wanted to do it? But it was well rewarded. Not only did I turn the department around, not only was I able to give myself the raise back, I was able to actually pay myself more in the end. But the guys that worked for me, they would have went to war with me over that. Once that was done, there was no doubt this guy has our back. If he tells us we have to do something, we have to do it. If he tells us we have to give something up, we have to give it up. He's not out for himself. He's out for the good of the whole. It's called fiduciary responsibility in business, by the way. It's not just because I'm a nice guy. It's because I know to follow the rules of business. But sacrifice is always rewarded, but it's seldom enjoyed. So number one, it requires sacrifice. Number two, it requires you to be honest with yourself. And in this day and age, we have a harder time than ever being honest with ourselves. You think the Instagram profiles you see of your friends are really indicative of their lives or their Facebook page or whatever it is? And that's part of the problem we have now. See, now that we live in a world where everybody can advertise their life, no one wants to advertise the shitty parts of it. They might advertise the places where they really were a victim because that brings its own kind of sympathy. But just the dumbass shit they do, they don't want to put that up and say, hey, look, I was a dumbass today. They want to make their lives look like everybody's been told their lives should be like, and then it becomes a competition. And once you can't be honest with other people about your life, you certainly can't be honest with yourself. Because that would put you into kind of a redundant conflict loop. So when you're looking at revenue in a business, and it's clearly a downward trend, most entrepreneurs, even most entrepreneurs will tell themselves, it'll turn around. No, it won't. If your revenue is in a downward trend and you don't do anything, it won't turn around. If you identify the reason for the downward trend and address it, you can turn it around. That requires being honest with yourself. When you say you want to have at least three months of income saved up, you have to be honest with yourself about what it's going to take to do that. And we are uncomfortable being honest with ourselves when it's not the things we want to hear. Now, when it's things we do want to hear and it's honest, we're good at it. 
right? We're really good at it. But we're not good at being honest when it's not what we want to hear. So the next one is it requires taking responsibility for where you are. And we've all but destroyed that in the minds of our youth today. And frankly, my generation as well. We've become a society that blames others for our problems. That's why class warfare works so good. That's why there's people that actually believe if you just tax the rich more, everybody would have plenty. That's why people believe that. Because it has to be somebody else's fault. And I'm not rich, so I'm comfortable with them getting the blame. You, when you start talking to people, I talk to people all the time, you know, my business is in trouble, my life screwed up, or whatever it is. And you start asking about, okay, to, to figure out how to get where you want to go. I got to figure out where you are. And I, all, the biggest battle I always have in, in defining where they are is getting them to tell me where they are without giving me the sob story about how it's somebody else's fault. Because here's the news. Here's the news, Buttercup. It doesn't matter if it's somebody else's fault. And I guarantee you played some role in it. But even if you are, at a certain level, a victim of a bad partnership, well, you chose the partner. Okay? But even if you are the okay, you still are where you are. And we have to be willing for this to work, for us to be able to define the goal, define the steps, prioritize the steps, and take action. We have to be willing to take responsibility for where we are. Regardless of how we got there, we are now responsible for it. And that's uncomfortable. And then the last reason is, is it requires courage to do what most won't. And I think people can really underestimate how big a deal this is because people don't even realize it's going on. This is what I mean. It's hard for most people to maybe put on really dorky clothes and go to a nice nightclub to be different. Now, some people actually enjoy being different, and they're quirky, and they like that. And those people usually have pretty interesting lives. But most people would have a hard time doing that. Most people would have a hard time going to a nice restaurant and dressing in a way that's de decidedly different than everybody else there. Most people would have a hard time going to a place where everybody says they like something and being the one person that says, I don't like this. People are naturally conformists. And we're conformist for a, a good evolutionary reason. And it's because of mimicry. And that's how children learn. Children learn to eat because they watch their parents stick their hand to their mouth and chew food. And they, they mimic it. You see this with my, my ducklings. When they first start getting wet, as soon as one learns to preen, another one learns to preen, another one learns, and then everybody's preening, and then everybody has that skill, and then nobody dies of cold anymore because they stay wet and matted down. And so mimicry is a powerful thing, and it is evolutionary. But at some point, we have to say, okay, we've gotten what we can get from mimicry, and now we need to think for ourselves and act for ourselves, and we need to break with conformity. And one of the main reasons people won't make a sacrifice is because your friends say, well, we're all going out Friday, and it's, it's hard to say, you know, I'm saving money right now, and I really can't afford to go out. Because you know what they're going to say? Oh, come on, man, I'll buy you one drink. And you know if you go out, you're going to spend more than you should. And you know you've made the right decision, but you want to conform because you want to be part of that group. When everybody else is buying you know, a new car, you want a new car too. Even though you know now is not the time. And most people do not live their life by defining their goals, defining the steps to get there honestly, prioritizing the steps, 
and by taking action. And even at a subconscious level, we're resistant to breaking from the norm. Do you know how many kids have gone to college just because, even though they knew better, everybody else was doing it, everybody expected them to do it, and man, there's got to be something wrong with me if I don't go? Do you understand that? Do you understand that the power that society has on our minds? And it's screwing us up even when we know the right thing to do, when everybody else is doing the wrong thing. We figure we can justify it too, and there's no reason for sacrifice. I don't have to be honest with myself, and it's not my fault that I am where I am because I'm just doing what everybody else is, so it must be somebody else's fault. That's why people don't do the basics of lifestyle design. Here's the good news. That doesn't have to be you. You don't have to be that person. You can choose to make this break any time that you want. And it is only in doing these things that you're going to be in good position to, to not only deal with, but to capitalize on this uncertain future. Because, folks, this future is uncertain. Everything I've said about it could be wrong. Not because I'm saying it's going to be too radically different. I could be way underestimating it. Or I could be going left when I should be going right. I don't really know. I have inference. I have intuitive guesses. I have fact-based prognostications. But in the end, one piece of technology or one event could come along and cause another dramatic bifurcation from the current system, like a fork in cryptocurrency, metaphorically or realistically. Both of those could have massive changes. But if we're designing our lives by defining our goals, taking the steps to get there, with prioritization as to which ones to do first, and we're taking action, we can adapt. I want to leave you with this. One of my real mentors in the military told me one time when he was putting me in charge of a detail. He said, I know this seems like a little thing, Spirico, but it's part of your leadership training, and I want you to understand what I'm doing here. So I'm giving you something to get done, and somewhere along the way, you'll probably have to make a decision because it won't just be what I said it was. You'll come up with a variable. And I'm not going to be here because basically this guy was taking a day off. <laughs> so my motorcycle taking a day off, left me in charge. And uh, he said, when you have to make that decision, I want you to realize something. The men will follow you. Because you make a decision. But they won't follow you if you fail to make a decision. You can't sit there and do nothing. You are not followed for the purpose of doing nothing. When faced with a decision, you have to make a choice and you have to do something. Do you understand me? I said, yes, sir. I understand you perfectly. And he said, you know what? I know you do. Here's the advanced training. He said, now I'm going to tell you, it's probably not going to apply with this little thing that I'm giving you to do today. But in the future, it might. Lives might be even on the line when this comes up. But there is a time when when you're faced with a decision, the decision is to do nothing, to wait it out. It takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of discipline to know when that's the right decision to make. Because a good leader is, is, is hardwired, and I think you're a good leader, you're hardwired to make a decision. That's why you do well. 
Because when you're faced with A or B, you decide A is less risky and has more potential to do right and has less of a consequence and is easier to change back on. So we're going to try this and we're going to be ready to do something else and you freaking do A. And if it works, it gets done. And if it fails, you adapt to it, you make it work, or you switch over to B. And you make that decision and that's good. Yeah, thank you. Here's the thing. You can get to a point where there's enough unknowns that you make a conscious decision to wait. But the only way that's the right decision is when you know I'm waiting for this piece of information to be A or B. And when A or B comes, I'm immediately taking this action. If you don't already have those things figured out, then waiting is death. I was 18 years old when I had that conversation. Still remember every word of it. Do you know why? Because it's the truth. Because it's the dad-gone truth. And again, this is conversations we should be having with our children in seventh grade. So there will be times in this future where you feel like you're at an A and B decision point. But when you really examine it without excessive emotion, without drama, when you say, well, I'm going to miss the opportunity, you're going to realize there's time. There's time, and there's no reason to take the risk without more knowledge. So I'm going, to, I'm going to make a decision to not act right now, but only until such time as I figure this, this, or this out. And when I figure one of those things out, this is what I'm going to do. That's how you're decisive and conservative at the same time. That's how you make immediate decisions when they're warranted, but you keep your men alive When, when inaction and waiting is the right decision. It will always be the minority. But they're the most critical times to pause and wait. If you can marry that with everything else that I've talked today, talked to you about today, you are going to have a fantastic future. You are. Even if horrible things come into your life, and it happens, you'll adapt, you'll overcome, and you'll move on And you'll keep building something more. If you ignore this, if you're unwilling to sacrifice, if you're unwilling to be honest with yourself, if you're unwilling to take responsibility for you where you are, and if you do not have the courage to do what others will not do, then you're going to be part of the fray in this 20 years of flux and bloodletting. And you, it may work out relatively okay for you because you're gifted, because you're lucky, what have you. But you'll never be what you could be if you're willing to design your life and live it with intent. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did and you want to support us, one of the really easy ways to do that is to simply do your online shopping at tspaz.com. When you go to tspaz.com, you click a link there. You can see the Amazon deals of the day. You can get on over there and check those things out. Pretty cool stuff. And you can just shop from there. It doesn't matter whether you buy the stuff that's on the deals of the day or not. It does help support the show. And you can also see the current item of the day, which will always be an item that we've reviewed for you and an item that I use in my own home and uh, have some experience with. And today's is for cooking. Now, we didn't talk about cooking today. We've talked about it a lot lately, though. And it's peppercorns. That sound very survival-y. Well, hey, man, do you know that there was entire industries built across the the ancient world on transporting pepper because it was considered a currency, 
right? So and it stores well. So it's it's definitely something for survivalism. But this is actually uh, by a company I've, I've covered this before. It's called Spicy World, and they have Tillicherry peppercorns. Now Tillicherry peppercorns are from a very specific place. It's the finest black pepper you can get. It really is. It, it, it is different. It does make a difference. It has that incredible taste. And you want, in your cooking, and your eat, you know, and just on your plate, you want to use ground pepper. Even if you go buy the cheapest pepper you can get, you want to use ground pepper. Now, the thing I like about this stuff is you can get a pound of it for $13.49 on Amazon with free shipping. Now, yeah, you can go buy a big, giant tub of the cheapest black peppercorn. It don't taste like anything at the grocery store. Pretty cheap. But most people, buy when they buy black peppercorns, they buy a little four-ounce or three-ounce bottle for five or six bucks. This lets you buy the most premium pepper that exists in the world and pay less for it than you would buy in small bits of it. Um, you can put it in a few ball jars to store it. Uh, you can use your vacuum sealer. I usually do. You probably don't need it if you fill the jar lid to the to the top and keep it on tightly lidded, and then use it as you need it. Um, but it's it's honestly one of the the like heroes of my spice cabinet. This black pepper, and if you give it a try, you'll see why. And I'll, I'll challenge you: buy some and crack a little bit of it, and crack a little bit of a cheap brand, and just smell it. And that's the thing about why you want to use peppercorns instead of just pre-ground pepper. The wonderful flavors in peppercorns are in the oils. And when they're dried and whole, there's a lot of oil stored inside of them. And when you crack them, that smell you... You know what I'm talking about? When you, when you get fresh ground pepper and you crack it and it smells wonderful, that's that oil being released. And smell is taste. So check these out. Uh, Spicy World Black Tillicherry Peppercorns. And it follows my credo. Whenever possible, pay less and get better quality. And you can find those at tspaz.com. And whenever you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. That brings us to our song of the day. Man, today's song, I I'm telling you, it's almost like John Adam has some level of clairvoyance um, in picking these songs. This is Hurt, and not the version by Nine Inch Nails, but the version by Johnny Cash. This is what uh, John Adam says about this song. He says, this song is a request from Samantha C., a uh, powerful redo of a Nine Inch Nails song about the consequences of your actions over a lifetime. Um, this is a incredible song. And Johnny Cash was at the end of his life when he did this song. I think he only lived seven months after this song was recorded. His wife only lived three. And he was not at the top of his game. You can hear his voice. It's there, but it's not the Johnny Cash from, you know, 1965. It just isn't. But it's an incredible song. And the I have a link to the video in the show notes today. The video is even more incredible. Let me let me tell you a little bit about this video and this song and how Johnny Cash did it. This is uh, from The Independent uh, out of the UK. I'm just going to take a portion of this article. But the article is called The Story Behind Johnny Cash's Hurt still the saddest music video of all time. Um, says, when asked if Cash could take on the song, NIN's Trent Reznor at first said he was flattered but worried the idea sounded a bit gimmicky. His opinion would change, but we'll get to that. The recording went ahead, produced by super producer Rick Rubin, and was released as a single in 2003, catching the ear of respected one-hour photo director Mark Romnick. 
I begged Rick Rubin to let me shoot something to that track, Rubnik uh, told David Urbanski, The Man Comes Around, The Spiritual Journey of Johnny Cash, who was instantly enamored with the rendition and even offered to shoot the video for free. Universal eventually agreed to the music video, but Romnick now faced a race against time. With Cash's health declining and the 71-year-old being unwilling to stick around in the cold Tennessee weather, he had only days to turn something around. Original conception for the video thrown out the window, Romnick jumped on a red-eye flight to Nashville and began scouting potential filming locations, leading him to Cash's home and museum, the House of Cash. It had been closed for a long time, the director recalled. The place was in such a state of dereliction. That's when I got the idea that maybe we could be extremely candid about the state of Johnny's health, as candid as Johnny had always been in his songs. That idea would blossom into a heart-wrenching music video that spoke about transcendence, transcendence of life and the gracelessness of death. The Osmandian crumbling of an ovir and the decline of a genre and an era, and an attitude. The close to the public sign on the museum, the cracked platinum records, the caviar and lobster banquet with no diners, the clips from earlier in Johnny's career, his wife June looking on, the closed piano lid. The tears well at different times for different viewers. For me, it's always the pouring of the wine from Cash's frail hand. June would die three months after fil filming her husband, Seven. Rick Rubin now sees the video as a historical document. Quote, I cried the first time I saw it, end quote, he said. If you, were if you were moved to that kind of emotion in the course of a two-hour movie, it would be a great accomplishment. To do it in a four-minute video is shocking. Reznor was sent the video while in the studio with Rage Against the Machine, Zach De La Rocha, And when the pair sat down to watch it, any doubts he had about the cover were gone. We were in the studio getting ready to work, and I popped in. He recalled, by the end, I was really on the verge of tears. There was just dead silence. There was like this moist clearing of our throats, and then, um, okay, let's get some coffee. A sad footnote to a sad story. Cash's home of nearly 30 years, which the video was shot, burned down in 2007. And it's all gone. But you know what? His music is left behind. And it will go on for a long time. I promise you we'll be playing more Johnny Cash for Song of the Day. True original. But what you hear in this song at the end is regret. If I could have done it differently, I would. That means different things to different people. And none of us, none of us will get to the end of our lives with no regrets. None of us. It's too late for most of us. Most of us right now say, if I do everything perfect... From here forward, I'm still going to have some regrets about some of the things I did or didn't do in my life. Absolutely going to. That's what today's show is all about, really. But remember what I said, you can't change the past. You can affect the present and thereby change the future. That's your choice. And that's about designing a life that's right for you and your family. So even though we may reach the end of our lives with some regrets, we'll be able to say, it was a life well worth living, and I did a lot with my dash along the way. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. 
helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears a hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember everything What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end And you could have it all My empire of dirt I will let you down I will make you hurt You stay the hell away from me, you hear? I wear this crown of thorns Upon my liar's chair Full of broken thoughts I cannot repair Beneath the stains of time The feelings Disappear You are someone else I am still right here What have I become My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end, and you could have it all. My empire of dirt, I will let you down. I will make you hurt if I could start again.